The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Who is winning Trump's trade wars? And can China find a way to exploit its vast but hard to frack shale reserves? These are the questions we'll be delving into on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and my co-host is Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen. Hello. So we'll be handing over to our colleagues in Asia later in the show to discuss China's shale reserves. We start, though, by examining the many recent movements on the tariffs battlefield. And joining us from Washington is our columnist there, Gina Chon, to sort out the mess for us. Gina, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So, you know, you come back from maternity leave a few weeks ago, straight into the mess, what is Donald Trump's trade wars, which, of course, are easy to win. So is he feeling victorious? Well, he says he is, although he's also very angry at various countries and companies that have reacted to his trade moves, although none of them should actually have been a surprise. Um, So it was actually a pretty confusing uh, week, given all the back and forth. Um, We had uh, people like Steven Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, trying to sort of tone down some of the anti-China rhetoric, uh, saying these investment restrictions that the administration was looking at would target all countries that are trying to steal technology from the U.S. instead of just China. You had uh, White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro just hours after that actually say that China was the target and no other countries would be uh, in the mix um, beyond that that front. Um, and then and there, there was there was talk of a, even an executive order to that effect. At one point, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that would would have just specifically um, fell onto China and basically um, block any company uh, that had at least or up to 25% Chinese ownership from buying any US companies with quote, significant technology. Um, so that was definitely a fear. Uh, and then we had um, the Treasury Department uh, quickly try to allay uh, fears in the market, which were quickly rising, uh, and say, indeed, they would just rely on the uh, Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., uh, which reviews deals for national security concerns and revising that as the process to restrict Chinese investments. So it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> Uh, so we get we get to that stage now today where CFIUS, as you said, is, is going to remain in charge of looking at investments in so-called strategic or, or um, security conscious companies or companies that have security concerns about them in America. And we see that as a victory, even though CFIUS is going to be overhauled somewhat, right? And it's a very opaque process. So we're kind of cheering opacity here over um, over what would have been a very obvious and very open um <laughs> Uh, block of anything to do with China investing in the U.S. Yeah, it's uh, the way the debate works these days where it's sort of the the least bad option, if you will. Um, I mean, the executive order would have just been a straight outright ban on uh, certain companies with uh, Chinese ownership. At least with CFIUS, it is definitely secretive. They don't um, reveal its deliberations. 
But um, if you feel like your deal doesn't present any security concerns, you do actually have a shot. And they, uh, the committee actually cleared a deal just this week of um, a Chinese company uh, acquiring a 45% stake in an energy startup here in the U.S. Uh, so it is possible, though definitely a lot of uh, Chinese deals have been blocked in the last few years. Um, Gina, I am going to ask a brave question, and, <laughs> and hopefully you can answer this. But why all the back and forth and waffling? It, it just it seems utterly confusing. What is driving? What, what's the driving force behind that? Or is it just they don't know what's going on? Uh, it's I guess a little bit of both. But the main issue has been um, trade hardliners, if you will, in the White House, namely uh, again Peter Navarro, the. White House advisor um, and the USTR representative, Bob Lighthizer, and some others um, who are pushing uh, the president to take a pretty tough stance on trade, whether it's on tariffs, whether it's on investment restrictions or other issues. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, the uh, National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow, being on the more moderate side um, and wanting to not. Uh, spook markets that much and not come off as uh, being, you know, totally protectionist. Although it's becoming hard even for that side uh, to maintain that position. We saw Kudlow today just after the uh, CFIUS announcement um, go on TV and and take a pretty hard line, um, probably directed by Trump to do so. Um, So at least the messaging is, is still pretty tough from the White House. So we've already started to see some of the effects of this. And there's one company here in the United States, Anthony, you wrote about it, mm. uh, Harley-Davidson. It's an American iconic brand. They make motorcycles. Um, they basically said because of these tariffs and because Europe uh, enacted their version of taxes on the motorcycles or what have you, um, they said, okay, listen, we can't afford uh, to, to keep making these motorcycles here in the United States, so we're going to pick up and, and go elsewhere. Yeah, it's. I mean, and this is one of the things I think Gina was referring to earlier when she said that there's been a fair degree of consternation and, and anger accompanied by Trump. And he, he has gone after Harley-Davidson a number of times um, on Twitter um, since this came out on Monday. And, you know, it, it's a perfectly rational decision by Harley Davidson. Basically, what what happens is they they sell a just I think it's about sixteen percent of their of their hogs are sold uh, into Europe. Um, now they make all of them that are exported to Europe here in America. And what what's happening is with with these retaliatory, retaliatory tariffs that are being have been imposed last week by uh, the European Union, uh, the taxes the import taxes they'll pay will go up from six percent to sixty to thirty one percent. So that's a pretty huge increase. It's about a two thousand two hundred dollar increase per bike. Which presumably they would pass uh, to the consumer. Yeah, well, they're saying at the moment they're not going to pass it on. Right. Um, and they say it will cost them about a hundred million a year. Um, they, if they and they're not going to pass it on. Instead, they're going to move production to their international facilities, which aren't in Europe, which is why they don't make them there. They make them in Brazil, in India. They got a, they got an out, uh, uh, one in Australia as well. Or I think that might be being closed down. And they've been building one in Thailand to expand their their Asia production. So basically, what they're doing is is almost like what Trump's been demanding of the foreign automakers. Um, if you're going to sell cars in this country, in America, you should make them all here rather than import them from abroad. Well, Harley Davidson is doing the opposite, saying, well, okay, so you're saying it's going to cost us money, Europe, to uh, import 
uh, bikes to Europe from America, so we'll no longer make them in America. Um, that will cost some jobs in America, which is for Harley Davidson going to be or employees going to be tough because while Europe has been growing for them, um, sales in America have been falling. Uh, which is why it looks quite bad. Although I think Trump's got kind of the wrong end of the stick because he said we'll tax you heavily mm -hmm. for any you sell back into the States. Maybe he's thinking at some point they will try and sell some more into here. But I think he's also right on one point where he says that basically they're using this as an excuse to push um, production abroad. And he's probably right. But, because, but, but he handed them the excuse. I mean, um, he gave yes, them no, ab absolutely. He, absolutely. Um, but you know, if you look at it, I mean, in one of the tweets he said they won't end up playing, paying the taxes, which is almost like saying... So this is all just a game. This whole tariff war is just a game. We're just trying to get something done uh, in the shortish term. But in the very immediate term, it looks like everyone's going to be paying lots of taxes. Um, the markets um, increasingly, especially looking at what happened to the stock on Monday, went down 7 or 8%. And um, Harley-Davidson are basically taking the view that this will be a long-term thing. Uh, tariffs will be in place for a long time. It'll cost us money. We don't want to pass it on to consumers. So we'll shift production overseas. But they announced that. Um, less than a, one business day after tariffs came in. Of course, Harley-Davidson has been on the list of potential uh, tariff um, uh, victims since early on in, in, in what was the Cold War of the tariff debate um, earlier this year. Because you know, once Trump first said, we'll start taxing this, that, and the other in Europe, especially you know, steel and whatever. Yeah, Europe has been very specific about how they're targeting yeah. companies. And you know, they've right. gone after... Holly Davidson because it's it's an iconic brand and it's in Wisconsin, based in Wisconsin, which uh, is a uh, quite a Republican area, I believe. It's also where um, House Speaker Paul Ryan is from, so it's very very smartly politically targeted. Um, Gina, in terms of China, how are they kind of responding to this? Well, interestingly enough, they will come out with their own updated list of investment restrictions by uh, July 1st. So we will see if there's any retaliation. Um, there's some concern from the business community that perhaps they will say uh, certain industries will be opened up for foreign investment except for U.S. ones or, you know, something that calls out uh, American companies specifically. Now, with the latest announcement on using CFIUS instead of the executive order, maybe China will reconsider that, but they also have to think about um, the July 6th deadline for uh, the U.S. to impose the first batch of tariffs on up to uh, $50 billion in Chinese imports, which China said they would retaliate against as well. So there's still a lot of uh, ratcheting up that could take place. So, Gina, final question. Where, where, does, where do you think all this is heading? From what Trump was saying in his tweets about Harley-Davidson, like I was saying, it, it almost feels like he thinks this is a a short-term tit-for-tat game that will be somehow resolved, obviously, to his mind, in America's favor. But we're getting, you know, tariff after tariff here. We haven't even discussed the, the auto tariffs that will probably cost, well, American car makers reckon it will cost them $45 billion and, and lots of jobs. Um, is this spiraling out of control, do you think? Or is this something that can be reined in and uh, sorted out quite soon? It, it does seem so far that uh, it is spiraling a bit out of control. And um, the most worrying thing is that when you do talk to Trump administration officials, they don't really seem to have a realistic end game in mind, um, except for, you know, getting rid of all trade barriers or, or other things that are pretty unrealistic, especially for a country like China, given their own economic goals, like made in 2025 in terms of advancing their own technology um, that 
that seems a bit of a stretch. So short of that, it's unclear what they can do to um, change Trump's mind. They've already offered to buy about $70 billion uh, more in U.S. goods to try to reduce the trade deficit. But that hasn't seemed to appease the administration. So um, Chinese officials are actually left a bit confused as to what they can do to change the situation. I've got to be honest, it does seem to me that the likes of Peter Navarro and other hardliners just simply want to impose restrictions and punishments for what they see as past wrongs, whether whether they're right or wrong on that, and that the end game is, is purely that, and there's no actual strategy behind it apart from punishment. Yeah, no, that's and that's the thing that worries uh, markets and companies alike. Well, that's just that's just all good fun and games that, uh, <laughs> that that no one's winning at the moment. Gina, thanks very much for coming on. Um, undoubtedly, we'll be talking about this and many other issues coming out of Washington in the next few weeks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Hello, everyone. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong talking with Clara Ferrer Marquez, who's down in Singapore. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the latest thing in China energy policy, namely the exploration of massive shale reserves that China has. Um, Clara, this is kind of an odd story. So China has underground trapped in in rock some of the world's largest reserves of shale gas and oil, presumably. Um, It's one of the few countries outside of North America that actually produces it commercially. But if you look at the, the output numbers, they're extremely low compared to the state, just a small fraction. Um, it's always been in China's strategic interest to decrease its reliance on imported energy, but there seems to be a holdup here. What's what's the slowdown? What's what's the the bottleneck? And and do you expect it to change? Well, there's a couple of issues there. I mean, obviously, one is the paper, the pa- the paper wealth, as it were. So how much China has in theory? So according to quite a few analysts, it's the largest trove globally, bigger even than the U.S. Now, having a resource in theory and having it in practice and making it economical are two very different things, and that's probably where we need to start here, is this is not directly comparable to what we have in the US for many reasons. Um, It's much more geologically challenged. It is in mountainous areas. It is also in very populous areas. All of that uh, different to the US. It's also very arid, so water obviously being essential to, to hydraulic fracking, that makes it really difficult to extract, also very expensive. So it just hasn't been a priority. There's also very little data. We don't even know um, that much about what's actually there. So all of this has meant that it's been pretty slow getting off the ground, and just when it was getting off, commodity prices crashed. So it's just cranking up again now, and we are in China in terms of production pretty much at where the US was in 2005. And if you think back to 2005, that's just the start of the shale boom. Well, and clearly, apart from the change in oil prices coming back up nicely, you've got this change in the political climate with oil trade, you know, energy trade between the United States and China being direct play as this kind of negotiating tool where China is saying, well, we might import more energy, more oil from you guys. But at the same time, clearly, negotiations are, are going through some ructions. Um, to what extent is that changing the way China looks at this this opportunity economically and otherwise, to your view? Well, I think China is always very strategic about these things. It isn't just about the money. So yes, it costs a lot of money, but essentially, unlike in the U.S., where it was you know started by the independence, the wildcat um, revolution, as it were, in China, it's the NOCs, it's the state companies running it. Um, 
And that makes a big difference because that means you can run it as a strategic asset, have it as a strategic reserve. Um, and that is why we think, and that's the, the, the view that we've written, is really that that makes it worthwhile as insurance. Now, will it ever make up for all the other sources that China needs? Most probably not, certainly not in the medium to medium plus um, in terms of time frame. To, to your earlier point, I mean, you're saying that this is strategic and 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 that the, the state-owned enterprise are developing it, yet there was this kind of slow take-up before, which you seem to link to, to low oil prices. I mean, if, if it was so strategic before, why, why, didn't, why are they catching up now? Was, wasn't there just as strong a strategic case before for, for building this out, given you know, China doesn't, just doesn't have that much energy um, inside the country? They're, they're aggressively you know, confronting other claimants in the South China Sea because, in part, there's oil underneath the uh, – or, in theory, energy reserves underneath the sea there. Um, I mean, was, was commercial considerations not at all a factor? Well, we should separate oil and gas in this case, but if we just look at gas, so yeah, about 40% is imported. That's LNG, so coming seaway, and the pipeline, Central Asia. So absolutely, it was a strategic consideration. But if you think back to the time of the the collapse in the oil price, it was also when there was a big corruption crackdown in China, and this um, affected the oil majors. And so that was really part of it. And also the decline in CapEx. All of this is extremely expensive. So one of the points that we're making in the in the piece is the prices have come down. They're still expensive. And it was even more so a few years ago. So if you have limited uh, CapEx, you're probably not going to put it in, in this uh, frontier venture, as it were. So that was one of the factors that held it back, even if pretty much all along it's been a strategic option. Now, fracking in general is not a, a technology without its its environmental critics, to put it mildly. Um, and China has this, these serious environmental problems. You referred a bit to water. Um, it's not just that. And I mean, that's when I looked at fracking. I think like six years ago, this was this big story of like, oh, there's this treasure underground, and China's going to get at it. And the first people thing people said was water, water, water. Um, there's not enough water in these areas, and and the water that that China does have is getting more and more polluted i think like a some third of the country's waterways are so polluted that they're they're not useful for industrial purposes um there's all these huge challenges in terms of water pollution um if china pushes really hard on developing these these resources could we see even even more rapid environmental degradation um in terms of the water supply well, that's certainly a consideration. I mean, not only, if you, as you've said, is it arid, it's also populous. So, you know, you're competing with centres of population for, for that water. Um, and not only do you need water to go down into the wells, you also need to develop, to deal with the water that comes back up full of, of nasties, essentially. Um, it can be done. It can be dealt with. You can also recycle some of the water. And it can even become a profit centre, as it is becoming in parts of the Permian. You know, it is it is possible. Um, at the moment, that's very early stage. And certainly the lack of water will be a problem that China will have to deal with. There are others, but that's certainly one of the big ones. Well, Clara, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Gina Chan, Pete Sweeney, Clara Fiera Marquez for coming on the show. We doff our hats to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman, and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.